Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Last week we ended at verse 8. We're going to begin at verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 7. At the end of last week, as we were looking at verse 8, we read, Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. And I applied that in the spiritual sense, which I think is a fair application of it. I spoke about people who are patient from a spiritual standpoint and people who are haughty. And I talked about spiritual one-upmanship and people who wear their spiritual nature like a groovy t-shirt so that everybody can see how truly spiritual they are. But... In going back and looking at it again, sometimes this word spirit, the particular Hebrew word, can also mean the nature of something, the character of someone. We use the word that way even now when we say that person doesn't have a very forgiving spirit. We don't mean that there's some deep unforgiving spirituality about them. What we mean is it's just not their nature. It's just not their character to be very forgiving. And so when looking at this again, Solomon could be saying that patience as a characteristic is the better way to be, and that patient spirit is better than just being generally haughty, having the character of haughtiness, having that character of being better than everybody else, looking down your nose at everybody else, believing that you're just inherently superior to other people, because we all know how truly enjoyable it is to be around people who are like that. Yeah, and we can all think of an example. At this very moment, you're thinking of someone who you know is just a little too haughty. So patience of spirit, or just being a patient person, is better than haughtiness of spirit. And that got me thinking about in what ways is it better. Solomon doesn't really spell it out to us outside of saying, verse 9, and don't be eager in your heart to be angry. And that, I think, is tied together with the idea of having a haughty character, a haughty nature, a haughty spirit. People who are haughty, People who are stuck on themselves become quickly irritated with everybody who's not them. (laughs) And then they get angry at them. Don't you know people who aren't really happy unless they're angry? Mm -hmm. I mean, people who just look for stuff to be upset about. And most of the people in the world who are like that come make comments on my YouTube videos. And they're just angry about everything. I think social media, I'm becoming more and more frustrated by social media, seemed like a good idea. I put it in the same category as I put church. 
I have often said church is a really good idea if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> uh, same idea. Social media is a really good idea except for the people. And the reason that social media has caught on is because it feeds everybody's inner narcissism. And it allows keyboard warriors to sit behind their keyboard and, and just vent on everybody else. And just show everybody else their indignation. And it's not usually even righteous indignation. It gives them an opportunity to virtue signal all over the place. A phrase I didn't even know a month ago. I don't know it now. Virtue signaling. Yeah, it's it's kind of a. Somebody in the back's haughty. Yes, don't be haughty. Back off that. I knew it a couple of months ago. Yeah. And you know what? That made her really angry. And so, no, no, no. Virtue signaling. Basically, what it means is not really doing anything about anything, not improving anything, not actually getting out and feeding anybody or picking somebody up and taking them to the doctor or anything, not actually doing any positive stuff, but saying things publicly, especially on social media, that indicates that you care. You really, really care. You care more than the average person. You're a really caring, genuine, and you just cloak the language, or sometimes it's very blatant language, in such a way that it says, look at me. I'm one of those people who really has a heart for other people, and you can tell it by the fact that I wrote this on Facebook. And so I must be really good. That's called virtue signaling. That's going on a lot in the world. And that is, I think, the result of haughtiness of spirit. And that's why so much virtue signaling comes across as angry. These people are just sitting at their keyboards, they're anonymous, and so they can just be angry and spread their vial out to everybody else. But notice here what Solomon says about that. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Notice the word resides there. Everybody gets angry occasionally. Be angry and sin not, we're told. Righteous indignation rises up. But anger as a way of being, anger as a personality characteristic, abides in fools. So if you see somebody who's just constantly angry, constantly upset, can't wait to spew their venom on everybody else to demonstrate how much better they are than everybody else, to show their haughtiness of spirit. He says, that's just foolish. And it really is because, I, I don't mean to keep talking about social media tonight, but it reaches the point when you read anybody who's constantly angry, who's constantly virtue signaling, who's constantly upset about everything else, after a while, you just get tired of them. After a while, it's just not entertaining anymore. And after a while, you think they're really being foolish. And when they go after me, I can only speak from my experience, when they go after me, then I remember that we're instructed not to answer a fool after his folly. 
and I recognize that they're angry because they're just being foolish. They're just being silly. And as often as not, they're not being genuinely biblical. And what I mean by that is they're not paying attention to context or words or meanings. They're just upset because they believe something different than we believe. And because we believe differently, they're angry about it. That's just their nature. That's their character. They are the kind of people who Solomon says they're eager in their heart to be angry. Mm -hmm. Anybody know anybody like that? (laughs) They live off their anger. So Solomon says people like that really are fools. And it resides, that anger resides in the bosom of those fools. Now, along the same lines, he says, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? (laughs) I can give you a quick example of what Solomon's talking about here. Uh, There was a period of time in the 1980s when the movie, um, the TV show was Happy Days. What was the movie? Let's see, the movie was... American Graffiti. American Graffiti. And all of a sudden, it was like American Graffiti, Happy Days. And it was like, man, it was so good back in the 50s. Back in the days when all you had to do was hit a jukebox and you could be like Fonzie. You could just be cool all the time because the 50s were great. And then you talk to somebody like my parents who were alive in the 50s and you say, were the 50s really all that great? And they say, no, no. But when they were growing up, they thought, man, you know, the, the roaring 20s must have been great. Man, so you can constantly look back at previous generations prior to the generation you live in, prior to the time you live in, and it's real easy to romanticize those periods of time and say, you know, it probably used to be really good, you know, during biblical times when there were people walking around doing miracles. That must have been really good. Those must have been really good days when they were constantly getting beaten and thrown in jail. And those were probably not grand days either. And so Solomon, way back in his day, heard people saying, well, you know, these days aren't as good as the previous days. Now, they might have been saying that in terms of you're the king now, but boy, when David was king, then we were really a nation to be reckoned with. You're a king, you've been taxing us more, you've been making yourself rich. It's tougher now, but it used to be really good. Or they may even be talking about the days prior to that. We don't know. All we know is that Solomon says, it's foolish to keep thinking, you know, back then was really good compared to now. And why did I get stuck in now? Why wasn't I back then when things were good? So he says, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. I think that is in direct contrast to the phrase or a parallel to the phrase. The anger resides in the bosom of fools. He's talking about wise people and foolish people. And any time that he says you're not being wise, he says you're being a fool. There's only two categories to choose from here. And it's not wise for you to ask about this. It's foolish for you to think. 
wow, it must have been good before I got here, previous generations, times before me. Those must have really been good, but I'm stuck in these lousy days now. Now, why is that foolish to talk like that? Because, as he keeps saying, God is sovereign. God is in charge. Because God is in charge, and because there's a time and a season for everything that God does under heaven, then you're here right now because this is when God placed you here because he has a purpose for you right here, right now. Now hold on to that thought. Hold on to that idea of the former days were probably better. It must be rough on me right now because in a moment he's going to bring up days of adversity that we might live through days of adversity. Back then people were living in days of adversity and he's going to comment on those days of adversity and say that also is under the hand of a sovereign God. So it's only if you understand the sovereignty of God that you can understand that the time and the place and the situation in which you live is exactly the time, place, and situation that God ordained for you from the beginning. This is part of his plan. So the same way that last week we were told it's better to look on the things that are in front of you. The things that you see are better than the things that you're wishing for, longing for, that you don't have. Appreciate the things that you do have along the same lines. Now Solomon is saying, don't worry about the days you're not in. Don't worry about the days that were back then. And you don't know what the days ahead of you are going to be like. Instead, appreciate the day that you're in because this is, in fact, what God has intended for you right here, right now. And to wish that you had something you don't have is pointless, is foolish, is boxing against the wind. And to wish that you were in a different time than you're in is just wasted. It's just foolish. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't change your circumstances. So you can see why Solomon would say, that's just foolish. That's just not wise. For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Now, wisdom along with an inheritance is good. In other words, he says there are some people who are wise and rich. They've inherited. They've inherited money. They've got Money, authority, power, and they've got wisdom. He says, well, that's a good thing as long as you've got the wisdom part. The inheritance part, the money part, can only do so much for you. The wisdom part, he's about to argue, it's good for you to have an inheritance with wisdom, but you need to have the wisdom part to understand the inheritance part. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good And it is an advantage to those who see the sun. Yes, you're going to get by easier in this life if you're wise and you've got money. We just know that's going to make life generally easier because you're going to utilize that money for good things. You're going to understand how to utilize it. And you're going to be wise in the way that you utilize the things that God has given you. Okay, that's an advantage in this lifetime. We would all agree. But... Wisdom is protection. That Hebrew word is also the word for like shade. It's also the word for shelter. It can be like a protective covering over you. Wisdom 
is a protective shelter the same way that money is a shelter. Now, people generally think that money is the ultimate shelter. Just like in the New Testament, Jesus talked about the person whose fields were so productive that he filled his barns and his silos, and then he thought he had everything he needed. And so he said, "Uh, I've got plenty. I'm going to sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. And of course, the answer Jesus gives is, you fool tonight. Your soul is going to be required of you. So the thinking of the world is that monetary gain acts as the ultimate covering, that nothing can get to you if you just have enough money. He's going to compare that with wisdom and say, if you've just got the money, that's not the ultimate covering. Wisdom is the ultimate covering because wisdom will actually save your life. Money can't do that. See the difference? For wisdom is the shade, the shelter, the protection, just as money is shade or shelter or protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Think about it this way. If you're foolish and you have a lot of money, you can still do dumb stuff that will end your life. Right? More than likely, is that what you're saying? More, more than likely, you will do that. Uh-huh. Whereas wisdom, with or without money, is going to give you the knowledge of how to conduct yourself in this lifetime. It's going to prolong your life. It's going to protect you in that way. It's going to be the covering, the shade. It's going to protect you if you're wise in a way that money won't. In fact, Increased money increases your choices, and as I've often said, human beings don't do well with unlimited choice. Think about all the people you have read about through the years who have won the lottery and gone from being middle, lower middle class, and suddenly they're phenomenally wealthy. And there's story after story after story about how it ruined them. It just destroyed them. It wrecked them. It wrecked their family. It wrecked their relationships. Money can do a lot of harm. So he says, it's good to have an inheritance. It's good to have some money behind you, but you better be wise. Because it is wisdom and knowledge that will preserve your life. And money can't do that. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Now, verse 13. In light of all that, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what God has bent? And he's going to give you an example of that here. He's going to talk about the day of adversity in verse 14. And that's something that God has bent. When adversity comes into your life, when difficulty comes into your life, and it's come into your life through the hand of an absolutely sovereign God, what human being is able to unbend or undo or fix what God has purposefully bent? God has brought adversity into your life for a purpose, which Solomon is going to say in a moment. The adversity comes into your life on purpose, and you can't change that. 
you can't straighten out what God has purposefully bent in your life. Because God has a purpose in the things that he brings into your life, the blessings and the adversity. Here we'll let Solomon say it. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. Well, yeah. That's easy. Yeah, that's easy. When everything's going good and the bluebird of happiness is on your shoulders and it's all rainbows and kumbaya, when everything's going great in your life, look what Solomon says about it. Appreciate it. Enjoy it. Be happy. Because you don't know what's around the next corner. You, if you get up and you feel great, this happens to me sometimes. I get up some days and I just feel so good, I think, oh, my goodness, I died and went to heaven. I, I don't hurt right now. Everything's functional. I, I feel good today. And I enjoy it and I'm happy because I don't know what tomorrow's going to be like. I might go crashing into Concussionville again. I don't know what's going to happen. Didn't see that one coming. Won't see the next one coming. So he says, enjoy the days of prosperity. But in the day of adversity, in the difficult days, when the bad stuff happens, consider this. Consider the work of God. Consider God has made the one as well as the other. Again, common thinking is when good stuff happens in my life, that's God blessing me. God is blessing me when the good stuff happens. But when bad stuff happens in my life, that means the devil got in somehow. The devil got in and caused this kind of trouble in my life. And if I had just had more faith, if I had just prayed more, if I had just shown up at church last Sunday, by the way, that one's true. But never mind. If I had just given more to the poor, then this wouldn't happen. The idea that God pays people back depending on what they do, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. Well, Solomon's attitude, the proper attitude, the biblical attitude, is that the day of prosperity is a gift from God, but the day of adversity is equally from God. That means the good stuff comes from God and the bad stuff comes from God. Now, he may use an intermediary agency. He may use Satan to accomplish it the same way he used Satan in the book of Job to accomplish the difficulties that Job went through. But it's still God who allowed Satan to do it. It's all back to sovereign God who is the first cause of absolutely everything. So whatever comes into your life It is always what God intended for your life. But he intended it for a purpose. And I know I've said this over and over again. Now I'm going to say it again. I'm going to sound like a broken record. But this was really vital for me once I got it, once I understood it. If the problems of this life, if the adversity that you have to go through in this lifetime has no purpose, if it's purposeless, and God, who is loving, didn't stop it, then that makes him cruel. That makes him capricious. He's watching his people suffer for no good reason. But 
Once I understood that the Bible says that even the adversity that God brings into life has purpose, suddenly the adversity didn't seem like such an enemy. Suddenly the adversity of life seemed like part of the plan of God to mold and shape his people into the people he's determined that they're going to become because he is conforming us into the image of his son. And he's doing that through the things that he blesses us with, the knowledge that he gives us, the wisdom that we live with, but also through the things that we suffer and the adversity that we go through. We just read it out of the book of Romans. That these difficult things that we go through give us patience, triedness. It changes our character. It's good for us ultimately. The writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. chastens. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, and if you haven't endured that chastening, you're not a son. You're not a child of God if he doesn't bring adversity into your life because both the blessings and the adversity have purpose. And if that is true, then that means that the same God who's going to give you the wisdom and endurance to not let the overflowing blessings destroy you is the same God who's going to make sure that the problems, the trials, the troubles of this life don't destroy you. Because he doesn't bring adversity into your life for the purpose of destroying you. He brings adversity into your life. He brings blessings into your life for the purpose of teaching you, for the purpose of building you up. Here, let's try this. Kyla, does your father, or it might be your mother, but she's so sweet, I'm going to go with your father. Does your father ever discipline you? Wow, that was quick. You didn't even hesitate. Wow. Okay, now I think the rest of the room is just curious, so I'm going to ask the other question. Does your mother ever discipline you? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Do they discipline you because of how much they hate you? No. And you know that. You figure that out. You're 16, right? 17. Okay. Oh, that's right. 17 now. Okay. You're 17 and you have already figured out something that theologians don't seem to get too often, which is God doesn't punish people because he hates them. His own people, the ones that he loves, he corrects. He chastens them because he loves them. The same reason your parents do it. Your parents do it because they love you and they're forming you into the person you're going to become. Same idea with God. He is your loving father. And because he is your loving and sovereign and all-powerful father, he brings blessings into your life so that you have times of respite and times of peace and times of happiness. But if all you had in your life was peace and happiness and everything was great, if your parents did nothing but give you everything your little 16-year-old head ever wanted, I know you're 17, but if they did it when you were 16 or 15 or 14, what kind of kid would you be now? Spoiled. Spoiled. You'd be spoiled out of your head, right? So the discipline 
helps you to understand the type of person you should be. We get that when we're talking about parents and children. Same idea with God. That's what Solomon is driving at. That the day of prosperity comes from God and you should be happy in it. But then when the day of adversity comes, consider that God made one and the other. God made them both. Job argued, said to his wife, we've accepted blessings at God's hand. Shouldn't we also accept this adversity from his hand? Trouble from his hand? It's all from God. Why? Well, now he's going to answer why. God made the one as well as the other so that a man may not discover anything that will be after him. In other words, God makes days of good days of bad, so that you cannot figure out confidently what's coming. It's up to him. And if he's the only one who knows what's coming and you don't, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know if you're going to make it home tonight. You don't know what might happen sitting here right now. And God did that purposefully so that you can't become independent in your knowledge of your own life. What do you have to be? Dependent on him. You have to be faithful to him. You have to count on him. You have to know that whatever comes, it came from him, and he's doing it on purpose, and you have to rely through every day of your life, good or bad, on him. And that's why he does it that way. Do you understand Solomon's argument? God does things the way he does them to make you depend on him. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. We've seen that, haven't we? Good people, godly people who seem to die too young. I'll give you a quick example. I haven't used this example in enough years, but those of you who are really adept with the archive, then you can go one for one with my wife anytime because she's really adept with the archive. I used to have a Bible study in my house, in my living room, years ago. There was a young 15-year-old girl who was a head taller than me, who used to come to our Bible study. Every week she would call the different people who were coming to the Bible study and she would ask for a ride. She wanted to be there. And uh, she would ask some of the deepest, most serious questions that I'd ever heard, even from adults. I mean, she was really in to the word of God. And then one day she was crossing the street I was at work at the studio in Brentwood. I got a phone call. She's been hit by a car. She's dead. Just gone. Just gone. And she was one of my favorite people. I mean, in terms of when I do Bible study, if she wasn't there, I was like, well, we can't do it then. You know, she's, I just, one of the most God-fearing young people I'd ever seen. Gone. Terrible thing happened to her. Her mother was devastated. It was horrible. 
She was running across the street, car coming down the street, bang, hit her, dead. Okay, so that's what Solomon's saying. In this lifetime that I've lived, I have seen righteous people perish in their righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. I mean, is there any explanation for that? That girl's life was cut short. Keith Richards won't die. I just picked (laughs) Keith Richards out of the hat. but (laughs) Some people live lives that seem so debauched that you think God has to pay them back now. God can't be tolerant of them anymore. And I've seen all these good people who have struggled, who have suffered, who have even perished in their righteousness, and that person keeps living? How is that fair? Now, the reason that Solomon has introduced this is that he's going to spend the next few verses, and I think these next few verses are all tied into the larger topic, which is the concept the doctrine of retribution. The reason that we needed to read the book of Job before we read the book of Ecclesiastes is because the book of Job, more than any of the other wisdom books, does bring out that doctrine of retribution. What that means is Job's friends argued that the reason God did these things to Job had to be that Job did something. Job was evil in some way. Job must have brought this on himself, and then God poured out retribution for what Job did. And they argued consistently that the righteous, the good people, live good lives and long lives, and everything goes right for them. And the evil people are always brought low, and God always brings them down. And, of course, Job kept correcting their errant thinking and saying, well, no, that's not the way it works. This idea, this concept of the retribution of God and the response of God to what human beings do was very, very common in Solomon's day. Certainly we saw it already in the book of Job, seemed to believe in this concept of the retribution of God. Solomon is now correcting that. Solomon is starting by saying, righteous men perish. And I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. During this futile life that I've lived where everything seems like vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. In the futility of this life, I've seen stuff like righteous people perishing. And I've seen wicked men that just keep living. That's not fair. But it's what happens. And it undermines this theory of God's retribution in accordance to how humans are. You understand the argument so far? Okay, that'll help you understand what's about to be said. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Verse 16, taken completely out of its context, would be really hard to understand unless you had all that background that I just tried to spell out for you because it says, do not be excessively righteous. And if you just took that out of its context and added, do not be overly wise, why would you ruin yourself? 
if you, if you just took that by itself and stuck it on Facebook, my verse for the day, here it is. Don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wise. Now, as often as not, when people preach on that, they kind of say, oh, well, what that means is that life is supposed to be the median road. You know, you're supposed to just go through life without being overly righteous. But then verse 17 says, and do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. The same word, that excessively. Why should you die before your time? So then the people who take that median road philosophy say, it means don't try to be extra good, but don't try to be extra bad. Just live your life down the middle and don't be too good and don't be too bad. And that's what Solomon was getting at. And after all, Solomon's a smart guy and he said it. So I just live my life in a way where, yes, I sin some, but, you know, not too much. And yes, I try to be biblical, but, you know, not too much because I don't want to be excessively righteous. I don't want to be excessively foolish. It's not at all what Solomon's getting at. He's still responding to the idea that God pours out retribution for human behavior. Because if you believe in that concept of retribution, then you're going to do everything you can to be excessively righteous because you're going to think that prolongs your life. You're going to think, well, then if I'm extra, extra good, I can guarantee myself a long life. And the same way, since God pours out retribution, if I'm extra bad or excessively bad, then that's going to be God pouring out retribution. My life's going to be shortened. And he's saying that's not the way it works. Instead, do not be excessively righteous. Why? Because God is going in his sovereignty. He's going to prolong your life and bring trouble into your life for his own sake, not because of what you did. Not because you were really good. And not because you were really bad. God is going to do sovereignly what God is going to do. And it's not going to be dependent on your behavior. Do not be excessively righteous. And do not be overly wise. And what that means, by the way. Remember Jesus calling out the Pharisees because they blew trumpets before they went and gave anything. So that everybody would look at them. Virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. Yes, exactly. Wow, you brought that all the way around. They made sure that they made long prayers so that everybody saw them. They increased their phylacteries so that they looked extra, extra holy. Well, that's the same kind of concept that he's getting into here. You don't need to be like that in order to guarantee the goodness and the blessings of God. Because I've seen really good righteous people perish in their righteousness. And I've seen really wicked people live on in their life. So God is not responding to human behavior when he doles out the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. I've seen in my own lifetime, Solomon says, righteous men who perish and wicked men who prolong their lives. So don't be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why would you ruin yourself? And do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. 
Why would you die before your time? By the way, the Hebrew word that is rendered, why should you ruin yourself, is actually a word that sometimes is used for confusion, public shame and befuddlement. And so what he's really saying is, if you make yourself overly wise, if you really demonstrate and show off how righteous you are, and then God makes you perish anyway, that that's going to cause confusion, befuddlement, especially if you believe that God always responds to what people do. So it's a complex argument, but are you getting it? Am I spelling it out in such a way that you understand it? Okay. So why will you die before your time? Verse 18. It's good that you grasp the one thing and also not let go of the other. In other words, it's good that you understand, first off, that God in his sovereignty brings about righteous men who perish and wicked men who prolong their lives, and that you understand that you shouldn't try to be one way or the other in order to accomplish your own life the way you want your life because God is going to sovereignly do what God is going to sovereignly do. He doesn't react to human beings, and you should hold on to both those concepts. And if you hold on to the concept that God is sovereign in the things that happen in life, and you see that righteous men perish and wicked men continue, then you're going to have balance. Then you have something to hold on to where you can view what look like the disparities of this life and you can understand them. It's good that you grasp the one thing and also not to let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of those things. Notice it's back to God. It's back to central God. It's back to the ones who worship God, the one who fears God, the one who understands and has wisdom towards God is going to understand that, yes, the righteous perish, but that doesn't change God. God is still good. God is still right. God is still holy, and righteousness is still the way. And just because wicked people, and boy, this is a temptation, especially in our modern society, just because wicked people seem to end up with all the good stuff, and they seem to have long lives, and they seem to get all the attention and the fame and the money and the stuff, the temptation is to say, well, then I want to be one of them. Which is why Solomon says, don't be overly wicked either. Don't go be like them. Remember that God is in charge of both the good and the wicked, and the lifespan of anybody, and he's going to bring about the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. And if you fear God, you'll understand that he and his sovereignty is in charge of all that. Got it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Have I over-talked this yet? No. No? Okay. It's good for you to grasp the one thing and not to let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Now, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. If you've got a city and he's got one king, you might be able to kind of overthrow that king. But if, he, if you've got a council of ten, it's going to be tough to kind of overthrow all ten of them. So there's strength in that kind of rulership. But he says the wisdom of a wise man strengthens him 
as much as he can be strengthened, very similar to when he was talking about the two friends. A man by himself is not that strong. Get two of them. They can look out for each other. A cord of three is really hard to break. Okay, same idea here, that a city of 10 rulers is really tough to overtake, and a wise man is really tough to overtake. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Uh, That would fit in the New Testament just about anywhere. That would fit right in what we're learning in Romans at this point on Sunday mornings. Solomon says, and again, this is in the context of do not be excessively righteous. Don't think of yourself as being the really, really good ones because he says there's nobody on the planet who doesn't sin. There's nobody who continually does good and never sins. So don't be thinking of yourself as the superior one, as the always righteous one. And also, and man, this is great advice. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you. The modern day equivalence of that would be, don't take to heart everything you read on Facebook. Don't take to heart everything you read on the internet. Don't take to heart every piece of fake news that upsets you politically. Don't take to heart everything that everybody says. Because remember, he's already said, there are lots of fools in the world. There are lots of people who lack wisdom in the world. But they're going to keep talking. What was the demonstrative signs of a fool? We've seen it a couple times now. It's that they don't stop talking. The words just keep coming. Even though they're foolish words, they keep coming. So then if you're wise, you won't take those words to heart. You'll let them roll off you. Do not take seriously all the words that are spoken unless you hear your servant cursing you. Why? Because you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed other people. There it is. Why don't you take everything to heart? Because you're likely to hear things about yourself you don't like. So that's why you shouldn't take it all to heart. But then remember, you've talked about other people. And what if everybody you ever talked about knew what you said? That'd be a tough one for you. I told Steve out back the other day at Christian's graduation party. He asked me about somebody, and he said, what's going on with them? What's the situation? I said, well, I can't really talk about it. But then I said to him, the principle is, if you ask me about them, and I tell you what's going on with them, then at some point you're going to think, what does he say about me when I'm not here? You got to kind of be careful about talking about people, because what if those people Ever found out what you said? Well, you know for a fact that you've talked about other people. And because you've talked about other people, don't act all indignant and angry. Remember, anger resides in the bosom of fools. Don't get all upset and angry and get your nose all out of joint because somebody said something about you. First off, who are you? What makes you so important? 
And secondly, you know you've done the same thing. So that's really good advice, isn't it? And by the way, if you can be like that, life just gets a whole lot easier. It's just easier to navigate life if you're not always angry at every fool who's saying some silly thing. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Now, I tested all this with wisdom, says Solomon. And I said, I will be wise. Okay, now this is really interesting because when we think of Solomon, we think of the wisdom that God gave him, and we know his reputation, that he was the wisest of kings that ever lived. He was given God-given wisdom. Therefore, the wisdom of Solomon is something that we talk about and aspire to. The wisdom of Solomon. He was such a wise man. I was going to say he's such a wise guy. He was such a wise man that his reputation for wisdom has been passed down through all these centuries. So he says, I tried to figure all this stuff out. All these things that he's mulling over, that he's having difficulty figuring out. He says, I tried to figure all this out using all this wisdom that I have. I tested all of this with this wisdom, and I even said I will be wise, and yet understanding all of that, he says, was far from me. Now, if the smartest man who ever lived, if the one who had the most God-given wisdom, reaches the point of saying, I can't figure it out, what hope does Jeff have? Well, I mean, he was there. I had to pick somebody. I was going to say Steve, but he's too close. He could hit me from here. What hope do any of us have if Solomon couldn't figure it out? He was given all this wisdom from God, and even he says, I directed my mind to understand these things. I tested all of this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise. I'm going to understand all this. But it was far from me. What has been is remote, and the Hebrew word there can equally be translated dark. Something that is covered. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. The way God does things. We were just reading again at men's meeting. We were just reading again about the way God has formed salvation, the way he has dealt with Israel and the church, and the way that he is using the church in order to make Israel jealous, but that he sent Jesus to confirm the words that were spoken to the fathers, and then also to be gracious to bring the Gentiles in. And we were all just kind of shaking our head by the end of last night and saying, who could have figured that out? And even Paul says that at the end of Romans 11. Who could figure this out? Well, that's what Solomon's saying. He's saying everything that is, I I investigated. I tried to figure this all out. But what is and what has been and the way God does things is mysterious. It's dark. It's covered. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know it, to investigate, 
and to seek wisdom and to seek an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. Now, the reason we had to read Ecclesiastes before we read Proverbs is that the first seven chapters of Proverbs, we're going to get into some of the folly that that Solomon got into so that he could understand the evil of the folly he was into. I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered that more bitter than death is the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. When we get to the book of Proverbs, we're going to start to understand that he's not always speaking. Sometimes he is. Remember, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Sometimes he does make reference directly to the female species, but sometimes he's also talking about folly, and he gives it a feminine gender. It's like the woman of folly. And who can escape that? She has snares, and she has nets, and she has chains. And the answer to who can escape it is the one who is pleasing to God will escape it. But the sinner will be captured by it. So even though he feminized it, I don't think he's making an anti-woman statement here. So you can put your placards down and stop marching back and forth in front of the... Well, never mind. Behold, I've discovered this. Okay, here's his conclusion for the moment. Verse 27, and we'll be done for the evening. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher. Adding one thing to another to find an explanation. In other words, I got facts after facts after facts. I kept putting things together, a little of this, a little of that. I put all this together so that I could discover something important. Behold, I have discovered this. Adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking. He's still trying to sort it all out, figure it all out, and yet I have not found it. And I have found one man among a thousand who understands anything. In other words, the world is just full of foolish people. And maybe one man among a thousand has any comprehension of what's really going on and any fear toward God and escapes the folly of this world and the futility of this world. And now this is the other place where you women with placards might get marching because he says, I'm still seeking, but I have not found it. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Now, it's a misreading if you think he's saying one man out of a thousand is smart, but no women are. Because in the next verse, he refers to them collectively, they. So he is not separating men and women here. He's just pointing out how rare it is among mankind to find anybody with any wisdom, with any understanding of what this world is really about and how the world is under the control of an absolutely sovereign God. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, that word men, 
Adam in the Hebrew again. It's the same word that became a proper name for the first man. We still call him Adam, but it just was a word that meant man. And so it's representative of all mankind, all human beings. Behold, I have found only this, that God made human beings upright, but they have sought out many devices. Men are just inherently evil. Human beings are just evil. Notice that it says, but they, both men and women, all mankind, God made them upright. That's true. Adam and Eve made upright. But ever since then, the wickedness of men is unstoppable. Since then, their heart, their intention is just wickedness always. And we see it playing out in our world even today, even to this moment. And the world in general has become inoculated by it. They've become so used to it that they think that just because the majority does it, or the majority agrees, or the majority votes on it, that it must not be that bad. And how rare is it to find somebody who understands the word of God enough and understands what wickedness really is that they're willing to stand against the course of this world and say these things are actually wicked. It's very, very rare these days. One in a thousand, says Solomon. But the wicked stuff, it's rampant. And it's everywhere. And we're just used to it. We're used to the sin of the nation. We're used to our own sin. We're used to the sin of others. And we've just become complacent in it. And how rare it is for someone to have the wisdom to say, God is still up there. God is still a judge. Right is still right. Wrong is still wrong. Holiness is still holy. And fear of God is still the beginning of wisdom. Questions? Now, by the way, I know Solomon seems a little distraught through this book. But do you find yourself agreeing with him? Is that it? We're all good? All right, then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.